Take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Last week, we moved into a new section in this gospel where the, the writer is telling us a little bit of the tension between faith and unbelief and holding those up as contrast. And so you'll remember if you were with us last week that Jesus went home to his hometown of Nazareth and those who should have known him very well rejected him. Well, undeterred, Jesus simply pivots and he sends his kingdom forth in a different direction. He goes personally to teach in different spots and then he sends out his disciples as messengers. And it's from that that mission of his disciples out into the various parts of Judea that reports of Jesus get to King Herod. And so we come to this passage, chapter 6, verse 14 through 29, and the Bible gives us what I would just call a a close-up look into Herod's life, which is really a tragic picture of a heart which is enslaved to sin. So Mark chapter 6, we'll read verse 14 through 29. I'll remind you that this is God's Word written. King Herod heard of it, that is, the reports of Jesus out in the world. For Jesus' name had become known, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray for the help of God's Spirit. Father in heaven, this is your word which we have read. And we pray that you would grant to us the ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. That you would show us from your word uh, the things which we must know. And Father, would you help us not only to believe, but to hold them dear. We ask that you would again use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The main 
characters of this story. It's a real story. Jesus is, you might say, somewhat in the background. It's, it's his fame which has spread, and Mark tells us this story about Herod simply as a side story of the fame of Jesus. And then you have John the Baptist, and you have his message of repentance, which he continues to say, and he never seeks the spotlight himself. He constantly points to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease. He must increase. And then you have this not so royal family. Uh, If you've ever seen a, a twisted vine wrapped around a tree and you've tried to unravel that mess, then you've got some sense of Herod's family tree. Now, you would have first met Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2. He is the king of Judea. He's the one who orders all the boy babies in Bethlehem under the age of two to be put to death. But then when you have 10 different wives, um, your family tree is going to become very complicated very quickly. And so it did. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, the kingdom was divided into four parts and given to four sons. None of those four sons really are kings. They're what you call tetrarchs. And that simply means they govern over a particular region that had been handed down to them by their father. One of Herod the Great's older sons is a man named Herod Philip. And Herod Philip married his older brother's daughter. Her name is Herodias. And the Herod of Mark chapter 6, I know you're confused, is a completely different Herod. His name is Antipas. Now, Herodias, who is married to Philip began to like Antipas, and Antipas liked her, and so they committed adultery. Herodias divorced Philip in order to marry Antipas. So let me state it very plainly. Herod Antipas in Mark chapter 6 is married to his brother's wife, who also happens to be his half-niece. Herodias is around 40 years old at the time of these events. And we know from the Jewish historian Josephus that Herodias' daughter, who is dancing erotically in the court, her name is Salome. And she's a teenager at the time, so to track with this weirdness, she is dancing erotically in front of her drunk half-great-uncle, who also happens to be her mom's husband. And so it's twisted and ugly. And it is a tragic illustration of the enslaving power of sin. Which is why Mark pauses this story of Jesus. And he brings the camera lens down low so that you and I can look at Herod's heart. Because if you have ever thought that you could keep Jesus at a distance... That you can hold him at bay and enjoy your sins and sow some wild oats for a time. If you've ever thought that there will be a time later on that I can decide what I'll do about my sin and about Christ. Well, here's a tragic warning. Those who keep Christ at a distance never make their own decisions. And so we have three points in our sermon this morning. A troubled conscience an oppressed, excuse me, an opportunity wasted, and then finally an opportunity seized. And so we start with a troubled conscience. R.C. Sproul 
rightly says that the single greatest restraint for evil that God has put in the world is man's conscience. Even the most wicked people, those described as being without conscience, and he's talking about sociopaths, psychopaths, even they cannot altogether silence that voice of right and wrong that God has implanted in every human being. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul explains that God, long before he gave his law, planted the law in the conscience of every human being. And so you might wonder, why can't we just follow Jiminy Cricket's advice to Pinocchio? Do you remember it? Always let your conscience be your guide. Well, Jiminy, that works great in a world that does not have sin. It works great in a world with no depravity. And yet, because all of us sin in a variety of ways, the conscience of fallen mankind continues to grow callous as we sin. And so the more you sin, the more distorted and twisted your conscience becomes. And so apart from saving faith in Christ, if you were to let your unrestrained conscience be your guide, you will end up in a mess of evil. And you will ultimately be enslaved to many sin patterns. That's the Herod we meet. In Mark chapter 6, having built a, a world of wickedness, he can't ever fully silence the voice in his head. And I think that partly explains his troubled conscience. So as word spreads about Jesus, three theories emerge among people who are talking about it. Who is this guy? Verses 14 through 16, Herod latches on to the first, that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that seems odd to you and me, but people in the ancient world, especially around Galilee and Israel, would have thought this way. That those who believed in a bodily resurrection believed that when a person was raised from the dead, that they would be raised with superhuman powers. So here's a guy who's traveling from town to town, and he seems to be doing miraculous signs and wonders. Look at verse 16. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. In fact, that's the only theory that Herod can hold on to. Because he has a guilty conscience. Like he's utterly sure that John the Baptist has come back to life. And so if this was a TV show, or if this was a, a movie... The screen would transport you backwards in time. It would go squiggly and there would be some haunting music in the background to take you back to what caused Herod's troubled conscience. Mark's first readers over in Rome didn't know this story at all. Here's a pro tip, I guess you'd say, if you're ever going to be a ruler of a small area of imperial Rome. You don't ever want to offend those people that you are called to reign over. Well, Herod and his family had done nothing but offend the Jews. And in fact, his adultery and this incest marriage to his brother's wife is just the latest of a lot of public scandals. So Herod had John arrested in order to silence whatever he might say publicly about Herod's sin. But he also does it in order to appease his wife Herodias. Look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death, but she could not. I don't know if you noticed that, the, but the Bible is saying that both Herod and Herodias have a troubled conscience. 
But you notice, too, that those troubled consciences go in two different directions. Now, how can I be so sure that Herodias has a troubled conscience? Because she has a grudge against him. So you see, if Herodias genuinely thought that God's law had no relevance, had no authority over her, if she truly believed that, that sleeping with her husband's brother was, was somehow morally neutral, then she would not care at all what, what John said. Because after all, what does a camel skin wearing, locust eating, itinerant preacher have on a woman who is living in a palace? Well, you would think he had nothing to threaten her at all. And yet what he has is, is truth. Truth, which aggravates her conscience. And that's why John the Baptist is living rent-free in the head of Herodias. Her grudge, her desire for his death is simply a testimony of a troubled conscience. It's a deep longing to silence that troubled conscience. And some of you, I suspect, have experienced this in real life. If you, were not, if you aren't walking with Christ, but you've been around the church, you may have a, a guilty conscience in the same way that Herodias does. And somehow you, you start harboring hatred or bitterness toward other people around you who somehow represent truth to you. Whoever reminds you, and sometimes without ever saying a word, that you really are guilty. That your sins are trying to be covered up and you need to own them. It, it could be your, your parents could be other close believers. If you are not particularly walking with Christ, it might be a good idea to think through those in your life that you do not like. Why are they so annoying to you? Not always, but quite often, the bitterness that you feel towards another person could be your own guilty conscience. And so if your parents speak truth to you and your conscience condemns you, you should probably not put them on trial, but perhaps you should declare them innocent and put your own conscience on trial. And so the troubled conscience of Herodias leads her to hold a grudge against John because deep down she really does know that she's guilty. Herod has a troubled conscience too, though. But in his case, it doesn't lead him to bitterness. It leads him to what I would just call conflicting emotions. Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so on one hand, he fears John. That doesn't mean he's physically afraid of a man in chains. It means at some deep level, he admires him. And yet he's perplexed by him, even as he delights to hear him. And if that seems so strange to you, you should notice that Herod, that, that John has what Herod lacks. Integrity. He's the one person, I suspect, that Herod has ever met who has integrity. Because Herod's whole life, his entire family, and everyone who operates in his sphere knows this world of manipulative, backbiting, what can I get for myself, code of conduct. 
In fact, his family tree is filled with murder and manipulation and power plays and scheming behind the backs of other people. And it's a fact that people in positions of power often swim in those waters. And it makes no sense why everybody wouldn't simply likewise be consumed with self-centered, self-promoting angles to work. And so truthfully, Herod has no framework for a person like John. I wonder if you noticed verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John's not out talking behind Herod's back. In fact, a a few times a week, Herod might invite John out of his cell and into the court to stand in front of him. And then given the opportunity to preach, John would start into one of his repent for the kingdom of God is at hand sermons. And John preaches to an audience of of one, which is why he can apply this message of repentance so specifically. You imagine he might have said something like, Herod, look, you know that what you're doing is wrong in God's eyes You cannot have your brother's wife. There's still time to repent. You can just lay this mess aside. You can end it. Talk about conflicting emotions. He admires John, but he lusts after Herodias. He knows John is a righteous, holy man who speaks truth. But he also knows what Herodias does for him. So he listens to John, and he can't shake his words, repent of your sin, come to the Lord. But Herodias is like an addiction to him. And so here is a somewhat powerful man, powerless, enslaved to desire. And strangely, the man of God with a clear conscience, who's actually confined to a literal prison. John the Baptist, who has shackles on his hands and feet, is more free than this powerful man with a troubled conscience who comes and goes as he pleases, who gets exactly what he thinks he wants. Herod delays decision because he loves his sin. And as he does, he pushes Christ further and further away. The fact is those who keep Christ at a distance, never make their own decisions. So we've looked at the troubled conscience. Now let's look at an opportunity wasted. One pastor has said that the point of verse 20 and 21 is simply the necessity of decision. While Herod's heart remains enslaved to sin, he grows comfortable with this tension of of conflicting emotions. And yet every single day is an opportunity to repent. And it's always an opportunity wasted. What is it in the passage that keeps this pitiful man from true repentance? I'll borrow some ideas from Dick Lucas, and I'll mention basically five obstacles to his decision. The first and the most obvious is sin. You see that already. Herod has a pet sin that governs his whole life. In this case, it is sexual lust. It's illustrated in adultery and incest and longing after his wife's 16-year-old daughter. 
make no mistake, Herod is like a fish with a hook in his mouth. And so he's reeled this way by Herodias. He's reeled this way by Salome. And as he's reeled, one sin leads to another and another and another, simply because his whole life is actually governed by one pet sin. That's what sin does. In fact, sexual sin is especially prone to ensnare. So the Holy Spirit does something for us in this passage. If you ever took an anatomy class, you might have had to dissect a a sheep's heart. Gross. Well, Mark is dissecting for us Herod's heart. And the Holy Spirit invites you to, to draw conclusions for yourself. Do you see how pitiful this man is? In his mind, he thinks he is making decisions to please himself. And yet he is so enslaved to this sin that he hasn't made an actual decision of his own in years. He's been dragged all over the sand by one sin that he just won't release. And so if this is the hook in your mouth, wouldn't you say to the fish, hey, the first thing to do is to notice that you got a hook in your mouth. But we're not talking about fish, are we? talking about people and so if this is your hook you must say I've got a hook in my mouth and then you must pray for the Lord to grant you repentance and morning and night pray throughout the day at every temptation pray for the grace of repentance and then as the Lord in his mercy grants you repentance you see he's actually slowly giving you the power through his Holy Spirit to actually start making real decisions to decide to tell yourself truth to quiet the lies to decide to clean your house and your heart of every other hook that's still sitting around though he's heard John's message many times that first obstacle to decision is sin The second, though, is his guests. After Salome makes her request for John's head on a platter, you notice verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. If Herod was a 15-year-old, you would call this peer pressure. The the failure to make the right decisions because how you fear it will be read by others who are around you. And here's the fact. When you idolize your friends, you will always become enslaved to their perception of you. When you put the perceptions of other people up on a throne, you automatically push Christ to the edge of your thoughts. And as you hold him out there, you genuinely make, you can't make a genuinely right decision on your own because you've pushed him to the edge. But it's not just a a teenager problem, is it? It's a human problem. Maybe some of you need to hear that today. As the pressure of your friends is an obstacle to making the decision to repent that you know you should have made a long time ago. The third obstacle is the want of saving face. He didn't want to break his word to a teenage girl. But this is no stark morality. It's pride. Might be embarrassing 
to make such a big boast. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, which really he couldn't do anyway. It's just a figure of speech. But to say that in, in front of all your friends and then to have to backpedal, his pride stands in the way of the right decision. These are the kind of questions that you have to write about when you take a Christian ethics class in seminary. Is it ever right to break a, a promise? The Westminster Confession of Faith deals with this in, in chapter 21. But here's the overwhelming teaching of the Bible on this issue. Is it lawful to break a promise? Yes, if it was a promise that was never lawful to make in the first place. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, how grand and noble. Are you kidding? But that's what, that's what morality is doing when it's twisted this way. An opportunity to repent, an opportunity to turn, but it's wasted because of pride. Do you see how impotent this man is? And the fourth obstacle to a decision is the power of those who are nearest and dearest. You and I look at Herodias on the page of the scripture. You can see her for who she is. It's hard for us to describe her as, as somebody who's near and dear, but Herod sees her that way. Which makes the point that those whom you hold near and dear have enormous influence over you. College students who would come to faith in Christ, who want to genuinely follow the Lord. But mom and dad, they warn you not to make your religion too serious. Don't, don't go overboard with that whole thing. It's going to spill into every other area of your life. How many countless dating relationships that drive you away from Christ should have been ended earlier or should have never started. But because that person is so near and dear to you, he or she stands as an obstacle to a decision that you should make. The final obstacle that caused Herod to miss his opportunity to repent is the issue of time. Herod hears John regularly, but each time he hears him, he just makes a seemingly insignificant decision to delay a decision until a better time. And the truth is that there is never enough time for spiritual things. We are all chronic procrastinators, and we all lie to ourselves about time, and we say, you know, I really do need to get to that soon. But thankfully, soon's not today. Which is why the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because time is always an obstacle to salvation. But it's often an obstacle to ordinary spiritual growth, even among people who know Christ. You know this in real life. There's never enough time for spiritual things. So you might see this in Herod, and it's true for all those who die without Christ. When you keep pushing Christ to a distance, you forfeit your capacity to make decisions, and other people start making decisions for you. Herod didn't make the decision to cut off John's head. He just never made a decision to repent. And therefore, time ran out, and Herodias, with great powers of manipulation, made the decision for him. He heard John daily, but he wasted the opportunity because of these five obstacles. 
Now, for those who face those same kind of obstacles, I would simply mention three words that are always available to change your direction. I was wrong. See, at any point, he could have jumped over the obstacles. He could stop pushing Christ away. He could repent and change his entire life direction by simply saying, you know, I really was wrong. Have you ever said those words to others, to God himself? Sure, Herod is enslaved to sexual sin, but under it all is is just pride. And what happens when pride enslaves your heart is that it becomes like a a, a rope around your neck and it, it chokes you so that it feels nearly impossible to say, I was wrong. And I don't care who you are or what your story is, or how small you think your sins are, or how gigantic you fear they may be, you can literally change the direction of your whole life with those three words. Lord, I was wrong. That's four words I know. I turn from my sin. I need your mercy. I need Jesus Christ who is being offered And do you see this? It seems so absolutely counterintuitive to surrender to Christ, to reach out to him, and to call him to come closer to you seems like the ultimate loss of control. But Herod would whisper to you from the grave, sin enslaves. I was a pawn of my desires my entire damnable life. And those who should have loved me used me those who keep Christ at a distance never make their own decisions so we've dealt with a troubled conscience and an opportunity wasted I want to close with an opportunity seized did you notice that phrase in verse 21 it says but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet you see if if Herod is not willing to make a decision Herodias is going to make a decision for both of them And having wasted hundreds of opportunities to respond to the call of freedom, the call to have integrity, to rip the shackles of sin's bondage from his ankles, to be free as a man, to really walk with Christ and and have a humble, repentant heart, having wasted all of that. Mark says, verse 21, there came an opportunity. An opportunity for what? An opportunity for Herodias to manipulate her sex-crazed husband to get what she wanted. Sinclair Ferguson says Herodias knew Herod's weakness better than he did himself. Not only was Herod an adulterer, he was full of self-importance and pride. Do you see when you delay making real decisions about Jesus and about your own heart, there will always be people around you who are ready to make those decisions for you. They will always be ready to be more decisive about sin than you are about Christ. And here's the fact, when Herodias seized her opportunity, Herod lost his. And it haunted him for the rest of his life. Which is why you hear about his pricked conscience when when word about what Jesus is doing in verse 14 spreads around. Because that's just a heart which is enslaved to sin. You hold Jesus at a distance and you feed your sins and your conscience will grow more calluses. But it will also grow more deep-seated fears. 
cover them with all the calluses you want. Dude is scared to death. And then he finally does meet Jesus face to face. Luke chapter 23. Herod is a much more hardened man. Jesus has been arrested. And Luke says Herod was glad to see Jesus because he wanted him to do some signs. But it was too late. Jesus refused to speak. He refused to do any signs. Because the man who wasted so many opportunities to turn from his sin, to turn to the Lord, when Herod really does finally meet the Lord, the time to listen is gone. It's actually true for you as well. The time to listen and decide is now. So Herod did what hardened sinners do. He treated Jesus with contempt and he mocked him. Now here's the gospel by contrast. One king who could not be decisive meets the one true king who was always decisive. And the only king who truly was free to make his own decisions made the decision to come to earth. The only true king who was truly free from all the bondage and the shackles of chains took on the chains of a slave so that he might free those whose hearts were enslaved to sin. It was the decision of Jesus to relinquish his freedoms so that you might gain yours. Those who keep Christ at a distance never make their own decisions. But those who take Christ as Savior really are set free from the indwelling power of sin. It's replaced by a new indwelling power power and that's the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to throw off everything that ever held you captive in sin praise God let's pray Father in heaven we ask that you would cause your word to land in our hearts you make a a huge promise in Isaiah 55 that your word will go forth and it will not return void. So we pray that today your word will go forth and it will accomplish the purposes for which you send it. And we pray this for the good of your people, for your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is...